1 Corinthians 13 at verse 1. The way of love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. I suppose for many of us, these will be familiar words. When we understand them in their context, they're very strong words, as we'll see. And if we'll listen to these words, then I think we'll find that they will shape us. They have a power to shape us, both individually and also as a church. And that they give us a glimpse, a wonderful glimpse of the future that is coming, that God has prepared for his people. So let me pray, and then we'll make a start looking at this chapter together. Lord, we thank you for these wonderful words. We ask that you would help us to understand them. And we pray, most of all, that you, through the power of the Spirit, would do your work in our lives through your word. Shape us, we pray, as people and as a church. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Great. Well, uh, the issue behind this whole letter was that the Christians in Corinth wanted to be mature. Now, I'm a little brother, so I understand that. Many of you, perhaps if you're younger... You know the feeling. You don't want to get left behind. You want to be up with the grown-ups. You don't want to be missing out on stuff. Well, that's how they felt. The city they were in, um, it was a port, it was big, it was an important place. It wasn't a backwater. And so the Christians there did not want to have a backwater church. They wanted to be at the cutting edge, if you like, rather than being parochial. They wanted to be Premier League They wanted to be mature. And in their own minds, they had become so. So they had brilliant leaders. Originally, the church had been planted by Paul on his missionary journeys. But since that time, they had really upgraded. And the people who spoke on Sundays in Corinth now, they were big names, you know, well thought of, great orators. 
And they had also become wise. We see that in the letter. Um, Back when he had started things off, Paul had mainly spoken about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus, which is fine, but those things are, well, really they're the basics, aren't they? That's kind of standard grade or GCSE Christianity, whereas now they had really moved on to something a bit more sophisticated, a bit more philosophical. And to cap it all, in their services, they, they had wonderful spiritual, um, spiritual uh, manifestations of the, the power of the Holy Spirit. People uh, praying in tongues, um, which is a kind of a, a other languages, a sort of a, an ecstatic experience where the person feels really close to God. People prophesying, working miracles, the spiritual um, powers and gifts in the congregation there. They were a mature church. That's the picture that we have of the congregation. First class, fast-paced, metropolitan and cosmopolitan. They were very impressive. They were very mature. Only the problem was, as, as Paul sees it, the problem was they weren't mature at all. And this letter from the apostle, it's like a, a loving pin that he brings in just to burst their bubble. Lovingly, to burst the bubble of their pride. Because the Corinthians, he said, have fundamentally misunderstood what it means to be spiritually mature. For them, it was all about being impressive. Paul says, real spiritual maturity is all about love. This chapter that we have read is the heart of the letter. It's where Paul spells out his big point. He says, let me tell you that spiritual growth, spiritual maturity is all about love. That is the real mark of somebody who is, is pressing forward with the Lord. It's not about impressive leaders. It's not about brilliant knowledge or stunning spiritual gifts. The mark of real maturity is love. That is the true sign that the Lord is at work and that progress is being made, a life of ever-growing love and particularly for the people round about you. That's why this chapter is great for us because it brings us right back to the very heart of what, what we're doing here in church. We read these words and we're forced to ask, is this me? I read this about love. Is this me? Um, is this the kind of progress I am making? Often, like the Corinthians, we can begin to prioritize a kind of spiritual progress that is not love. You know, it's, I wish I understood the Bible better. I wish I was more equipped to serve. And Paul says, that's fine. But what about a heart of love? That is the real maturity that we should be aiming for. And we're also forced, as we read these words, forced to ask, is this us as a church? Is this us? Are we marked by the kind of love that he describes? Are we a mature church, if this is what it means? Primarily, that's what Paul has in mind, how they are with one another, the relationships that they have. And so we, as Chalmers Church, have to ask, is this the sort of maturity and growth that we're pursuing? Or if you're not yet a convinced Christian... I think what this passage does for you is it, it opens up the very heart of why a person needs Jesus in their life and why they would want him in their life because he is the God of this love and when you put your trust in him, he begins to go to work on you, to change you, to grow in you 
this, this kind of love. I wonder if that's something you would want. As we look down at the verses, as we look at the logic in what Paul says, there are three main steps, three, three things in the three paragraphs that our translation has there. Um, next week, in the middle, middle section, verses 4 to 7, Paul, he describes what love really is. And that's very helpful because it's a pretty sentimental, vague word, isn't it? Everyone speaks about love and everyone's in favor of love, of course. But what, what does it mean? Well, next week, we're going to look at that middle paragraph and Paul will tell us. He says, I will show you what love really is. This week, we're going to look at the frame, if you like, the first and last paragraph around the outside. It's all about the importance of love, and you'll see there are two things that Paul says here. First, first thing in the first paragraph, Paul says that without love, all service and gifts are worthless. Without love, all service and gifts are worthless. This verse is one to three. Please have another look at that. Paul says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Now, you can see what Paul is doing there. He's saying, look, guys, spiritual maturity is not about fancy gifts. It's not about fanatical service. What matters is love. And in fact, without love, all those other things are worthless. Now, that's quite shocking, isn't it? That even the, the very highest graces... And the, the strongest graces and the highest spiritual uh, acts and performance, that can be completely undermined by a lack of love. I mean, just have a look at verse 3. It's sort of annoying because it's on the join of the page. But somebody could give away all their money. Savings account is empty. All the money given to feed the hungry. What a wonderful act. Not necessarily, says Paul, could be a complete waste of time if that is not marked and driven by love. Or even martyrdom, second half of the verse. I could, you know, I could learn some languages and go to some places in the world where they're not too keen on that sort of thing. And I could preach about Jesus and spread the good news until somebody in power took it upon themselves to shut me up. What a wonderful, what a self-sacrifice and bravery. Wonderful. Not necessarily, says Paul, if it isn't marked and driven by love. And it's true what he's saying, isn't it? It's true what he's saying. Um, we can often do the right things, but not in the right way. Or we do the right things but not for the right reasons. So think about church life as setting up on a Sunday morning. Out of my way, I'm trying to help. Or we think about our, our motives. Perhaps that's more of an issue for us. It's harder to spot, isn't it? it it's, I mean, we, all, we can um, um, catch ourselves from time to time being very unloving in our acts of love. But what about our motives? 
Well, I, I teach the children because I enjoy doing that. I preach sermons because I like feeling prominent. I, I volunteer to run things because I find self-esteem in organizing other people. I help at events or I play music because that's an outlet for my creativity. I involve myself in other people's lives because that gives me a sense of feeling occupied and needed. I do something that I think I have a skill for because I I love to see the job well done, quite apart from any people who might be benefiting. That's true to life, isn't it? We help for reasons that are in us and not always because of love for other people. And Paul is warning us that is really serious, that when we use the gifts that God has given us like that, when we serve like that, it's actually worthless. What does that mean? Well, I guess he's meaning from God's perspective that that is not the kind of service that pleases him. And I suppose, I'm not sure, it might also be the kind of service that he is less inclined to use in the lives of other people. It's really searching stuff for us. And for us as a church, let me just um, speak for a minute with the regulars. What do we value as a church? What sort of progress are we pursuing? Well, I guess there are different things we might say. Many of us here will be very pleased that we're a clear church. You know, we're clear on the Bible. Uh, We have stood up loyally for the Bible. We focus on teaching the Bible. That's a good thing but only if it is driven by a heart of love and done in a loving way. It's no good being clear if that isn't marked by love. You know, we should be clear, but out of love. We stick with the Bible because we love the Lord and we want to hear from him. And because we love people and we want to share God's message as it really is because we love them. It's good to be clear, but only if that clarity is driven by love. Others among us will be very glad that we're a a well-run church. Um, You know, we we make an effort to do things properly, so things are quite slick on a Sunday. And um, many of us will feel pretty great about that. And on any given Sunday, I think there's about 60 volunteers who are doing things. And then in the week, there's um, people in the office... But again, none of that is actually worth anything unless it comes from a heart of love, love for people. Because we we want visitors who come to feel like they know what's going on and they're not worrying about what's going to happen next. Or we we want members to be looked after and followed up in a way that is well organized. All of that needs to be driven by love. What else might we value? Well, I guess in time, if we want to buy a building for a long-term home, then as a church, we'll have to give quite a lot of money. And Paul is saying that when that time comes, our motives matter. Because we could do that uh, dutifully. We're out of a sense of achievement. You know, we want to feel like we're part of a successful church. Or we could do it because we love our brothers and sisters and we want to serve them with the money that we have. And we love the Lord Jesus and we want to serve him and his plans with the money that we have. Beyond that, I suppose we have 
said that we, we long to have an impact in the city. We've talked about training people and planting churches, grand plans, which can either be driven by a first for our own esteem, reputation, or by love for the lost people of Edinburgh who need to hear the gospel. That's what Paul is saying here. Without love, all service and gifts are worthless, which is very challenging for us, but it's also very encouraging. Because think about this. What does, it, what does it need for our service to be valuable in the sight of God? What does it need for our, our efforts, our work, to be pleasing in his sight and something that he will use Sometimes, I don't know about you, sometimes that feels like it's beyond me. You know, I I don't have the skill, I don't have the time, I don't have the wisdom to be a helpful person like that. But Paul is saying that's not true. What it takes is love. So when you have people round to your house trying to be friendly, trying to build relationships... That doesn't need to be the best food they've ever eaten or the most sparkling conversation they have ever enjoyed. If you lead a Bible study in your home group or teach in Sunday school, it doesn't need to be the most creative, wonderful work that's ever been done. If you try to talk to a friend who's feeling low, you don't have to have the perfect words to say. In all of these things, if we have love, if we can genuinely say that we were in it for the other person, then that is something that God says he values and something that he will use. I find that very encouraging because we, we can't all be brilliant at things. You know, that was a, a big problem in the congregation in Corinth, that the people who were good at stuff were proud. They, the people who were not so good at stuff they felt a bit useless and a bit left behind. We can't all be brilliant at things. But Paul is saying that is not what matters. What matters is the love behind our actions. Now, Paul's not saying that excellence and effort, he's not saying they don't matter. But he is saying that there's something that matters more, which is a motivating love for other people. But why? Uh, Why does love matter so much? Why is it essential? Well, that's what Paul moves on to say, uh, the second part of what we're going to look at this morning. Without love, all service and gifts are worthless because, and this is where we, we slightly need to hang on to our hats, I'm afraid. It gets a bit more complicated. Because... Love is the essential mark of our eternal future with God. Let me say that again. Without love, all service and gifts are worthless because love is the essential mark of our eternal future with God. This is verses 8 through 12. They're a little bit harder to get a handle on, but let's have a look. Please read them again with me. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child, thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. 
For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Now, um, these verses in the course of Christian history have had some strange interpretations placed upon them. Often, uh, people read into Paul's words something about the completion of the New Testament. Can I say that that is not in view here? Um, The future perfection that Paul is talking about is not the completion of the New Testament. It's the return of Jesus. And the reason we know that is he talks about seeing God face to face in a perfect relationship with him. If you'd like to ask about that or talk to me about that, then please do catch me afterwards or send me an email. If you've never heard of that idea, then please forget everything I have just said. Paul's basic point here is that love is special because it is eternal. Love is special because it is eternal. The gifts and the knowledge that the Corinthians valued so much, they will pass away. In the end... They will be replaced by the greater reality of heaven. They are transitional. But love is not. Love is of the very essence of what life will be like with God in his eternal future. Love is eternal. Love lasts. And therefore, in a sense, it is more real than the gifts that the Corinthians had overvalued. You could think of it a bit like this. Um, Sometimes people bear the mark of a place. So you can tell a person grew up in Glasgow because they use certain words or they say them in a certain way. Or you can tell that a person has been to Word Alive or um, Tea in the Park or something like that, whatever takes your fancy, because even after a few weeks, they still have the wristband on. Uh, you can tell someone's been to France on the holidays because they've got one of the little Eiffel Tower thingies on the mantelpiece that they've brought back with them. Do you see what I mean? You can bear the mark of a place. What is the mark of heaven? What is the sure sign that a person's life has been touched by the Lord in heaven? Well, the Corinthians thought that the mark was knowledge, and praying in tongues, and impressive things like that. But Paul says, no, the mark is love. Heaven's not a world of Bible studies, or of cleaning rotors, or praying in tongues. All of that will pass away. But heaven is a world of love, and it always will be. Because, as Robin read at the beginning, God is love. And when Jesus returns, we shall be made into people of perfect love. We try to make progress now. We try to fight against sin and temptation. We try to make progress in holiness. But when Jesus returns, the Bible says, we will be changed. And we will be made people of perfect love if we're trusting in him. That is what he will do. That is what the future will be like. And so that is what God has begun to do now. The sign of being an increasingly heavenly person, if I can put it like that, is that the virtues of heaven are already being formed in us now. And that's why love, that heavenly virtue now, is the mark of true maturity. Please have a look at verse 11. Slightly puzzling verse. Why does Paul start talking about 
childhood and adulthood again, picking up this language from elsewhere in the letter about maturity. I think he's saying that the Corinthians have been very immature. They've been like children, impressed with their shiny toys, which actually all only relate to this present age. The gifts that they had prioritized are only for this present age, whereas love is the full adult reality of heaven. The person who is um, truly mature, who is, if we could say, advanced, is the person whose life is marked already by the love that will one day fill all things. That's why love is so important, because it is the essential mark of our eternal future with God. Love will fill all things when we are with God face to face. Have a look at verse 12, please. This is what Paul is saying here. Um, He's saying that God knows us perfectly, but we don't yet know him perfectly, yet. And that's why they, we, maybe fall into prioritizing the gifts that seem to give us greater clarity and knowledge and experience of God. But one day we will see God face to face And on that day, all those other gifts of speaking and knowledge, that sort of thing, will pass away. We don't need them anymore, because God's right there, and we'll see him face to face. Those gifts are only for this present age, therefore. But love is not. Love lasts. It'll never pass away. Instead, love will fill that future world with God. The image of the mirror that Paul uses in verse 12, it doesn't quite work for us because our mirrors are pretty good. Um, We don't always like what they show us in the morning, but I'm afraid that nowadays that's not the fault of the mirror. Whereas in Paul's day, it was more like a shiny piece of metal, like a, a polished piece of metal. That's what verse 12 is saying, that even at its best now, even at its best, our relationship with God is hazy and indistinct. There are many joys in knowing the Lord, but even at its best in this present age, it's hazy. And therefore, the gifts that we often prioritize now are only relevant to this hazy, imperfect present age. Speaking, insight, knowledge, they will pass away. When we see God face to face, we won't need them. They pertain only to this age, whereas love pertains to the age of perfection that is coming. Love will last, and therefore love is greater. Now, that isn't completely straightforward. Um, I think it would be fair to say. But just think again. Think about the lingering Glasgow accent or the souvenir from Paris. The mark that someone is a heavenly person is that the eternal virtues of heaven are being formed in them already. That is real maturity. And it's true, isn't it? When you see a Christian who is mature in this real way that Paul is describing, they are full of love, and there is a kind of a a whiff or a glow of heaven about them. Paul is saying that that is the real maturity, that love is what we need to aim for, pray for, work for in our own lives and as a church. Without love, all service and gifts are worthless because love is the essential mark of our eternal future with God. That is what this chapter says. Next week, we'll zoom in 
We'll see really practically, what does this love look like? What does it mean, this love? But as we finish now, just let me raise three questions that I think this passage asks of us. Number one, question one, has this love of God broken into your life? Has this love of God ever broken into your life? Maybe you're here and you're still thinking things through spiritually. That, that's great. What this passage, I think, is saying to you is that Christianity is not about a life of moral rectitude lived in order to win the favor of a scowling judge. Christianity is about love. The highest expression of love, this love, is seen in God himself and in the human life that he lived through Jesus. The love of Jesus led him ultimately to the cross where he laid down his life in love for us because there was a, a price to pay. A price had to be paid for all the wrong in us and in our lives. And in his love, Jesus paid that price. And in his love, it doesn't stop there, when we put our trust in him, he goes to work in us to form this kind of love in us. He changes us so that over time we become more loving too. I wonder if you've ever understood the Christian message that way, that in his great love, Jesus Christ can forgive our lovelessness and also change our lovelessness. And that's why we need him. And that's why you would want him in your life. Just very quickly, look at verses 4 to 7 again. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Think about how that love would change your workplace, or change your family life, or change the world. The love that we long for in our better moments is exactly what Jesus is offering. Second question, if you are a Christian, is your serving marked by love? Is your serving marked by love? This is something we have to think about it. It confronts us. It's very searching what Paul says because we can do all sorts of things and have it count for precisely nothing because we don't do it in a way that is marked and motivated by love. And for some of us, as we've heard these words, they hit us right between the eyes because we know that actually we're not very loving people, not in the way that we act, not in our motivations. Well, if that's how you're feeling, then don't panic. Don't panic. That's why God gives us a chapter like this to help us. Our love might be weak and small, but his is not. And he will help you if you ask him. He will help us to grow in this love. For many of us hearing this, I suppose the trickiest thing is to untangle our mixed motives. Because many of us would say, well, I, I do want to serve others. But that does often work out in a way that I also enjoy for other reasons. How, how can we be really sure what is motivating us? It's not easy. But we could help ourselves with some questions like this, perhaps. Um, do I only serve in ways that I find pleasant? Do I serve up to a point but then stop? Or do I go the extra mile for people? 
Do I do what I enjoy? Or do I do what I see needs to be done? Am I focused in the task in hand? Sorry, on the task in hand? Or am I focused on the people who I'm trying to benefit? When I serve, do I do that in the way that best suits me? Or that best suits others? We need to take some time and think this through. Whether or not we are marked by love in our serving. Because if we're not, then we're wasting our time. That is the challenge here. But there is also this warm invitation here that the Lord Jesus will help us to grow in this love in a way that, so that we might serve God in a way that pleases him. He will lead us into this glorious maturity of love. If only we are willing to ask him and willing to follow. Which leaves us with the final question. Are you looking forward to heaven Are you looking forward to heaven? This passage has given us a glimpse into the world of love that God has prepared for his people. When we will be with him, we will see him face to face, the God who is love, and we as his people will be transformed into people of perfect love. Heaven will be a world of love. Just think about what that means. A world without fear. A world without insecurity. Because we know that we are loved by those around us. A world without rivalry or strife. Because we also love other people. A world of peace and of working together. A world of love. Paul's words point us forward to that future. They make us long for it. And so don't they also make us want to have a foretaste of that, even now? That's really the point in this chapter. If you are excited about living in a world of love, then then live a life of love now. And let us be a church of love. Because as we begin to put on the virtues of heaven, we begin to get a foretaste of what that world will one day be like. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would form in us this love. Pray that for ourselves. Lord, please mark us with this love in our actions, the words we say, our attitudes, our motivations. As a church, Lord, please mark us with this love in our relationships. Lord, we long to be mature. We long most of all for that future day when you will return. And all that is unlovely and unloving in us will be taken away. And we will live forever with you in that world of love. Lord, help us to long for that day. And Lord, please help us to drag that back as much as we can into our present experience. Make us a people and a place of love for your own pleasure and for our great good. Amen.